You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Well, thank you for having me tonight. <clears throat> it, um, I'm just going to share some pastoral insecurity with you. Um, I told my wife I hate sometimes preaching at other churches because I always feel... Like, I'm going to be compared to the pastor and how the people are going to receive that and what are they going to think if, they, if it's not consistent with what they're, they're used to. Am I going to get ran out of the building? That kind of thought process. But in talking to Dave this week, I was asking him some questions about, you know, what the expectations are, those types of things. And uh, he said, don't worry. He said, I'm the, I'm the most boring preacher that there probably is. So it made me feel a lot better about myself that I can't, get, I can't bore you to death because he already does that. But, and then he told me Dylan Rowland is coming next week. So I know I, I'm all right for this week. But um, no, I am certainly thankful to be here tonight, um, thankful to have the opportunity uh, to come share the gospel with you. Um, like I said, I, I do worry, I have that kind of pastoral insecurity, but when, in the end, what I end up telling myself is, I have a chance to preach the gospel tonight, and that's a joyous, a wonderful thing. I'm thankful for that opportunity, so thank you for having me. Uh, we are going to start tonight in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read this entire chapter, and actually the first three verses of chapter 4. And do you typically stand at the beginning of the sermon when we read the scripture? I just want to be consistent with what you guys do, because it's a long reading tonight, so not usually. Okay, all right. So we're going to read the word of God, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get into tonight's message. In 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul wrote, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Blessed Father, God, we give thanks tonight for this holy word that you've given us. God, we ask for your help as we open the word. We pray that we will hear your word and that we will receive it, that we will believe it, and that we will live by it. God, we ask all things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to be a part of this series. As, as Pastor Dave said, this is, um, I think, a really important thing. We, we aren't preaching a, a series on the Reformation, but we have taken some time in our Disciple Hour, which is like a fancy way to say Sunday school, um, to talk about the Reformation. We're going to do that all month, and then uh, on Reformation Sunday, which is the last Sunday of the month, we're going, I am going to preach a message particularly on uh, these, these doctrines, on the, the Reformation doctrines of the five Solas, but I was excited when he, when he got a hold of me and asked me if I'd be willing to be a part of this because these are cardinal truths of the Christian faith. What we have to understand are, is that these doctrines weren't created 500 years ago during the Reformation, but rather what was going on was, the, was that these reformers were trying to call the church back to the biblical truths that had been lost for many, many years. And so I do think it's important that we come back and revisit and relearn, as James Montgomery Boyce said, that these doctrines, especially the doctrine of sola scriptura, is something that should be revisited and relearned over and over again. So I want to start with a a short story um, about a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s. Actually, 1927 is when he came into his his pastor. And um, he came into this church, which was in Philadelphia, and the first time, the first week that he came into the church, he was preparing for his message. They had this big, huge, gorgeous pulpit Bible up front. And he was looking at the Bible, and this Bible had obviously been there for a long time. And, and when he looked at it, there was a pa- it was open to a passage from Isaiah that was actually about all the curses against the Gentile nations. And he thought to himself, he's like, this is not what I want here in front of me every week when I preach. I really want a passage that really talks about the supremacy and the authority of God's word. So he goes and he flips back in Isaiah just a little way to Isaiah 55, which is a a, a very important passage about the word of God and the importance of the word of God and the supremacy of the word of God. And what he realized when he got there was that the page that he found it on wasn't really where it had been most of the time, that had obviously been turned. Because when he got to Isaiah 55, he found pages that were yellowed from all the time that they had been opened in that page. He found dog ears and rips and tears and highlights and marks on this passage. And he said, this is obviously where this Bible has been. And then he flipped back to another passage, Psalm 119, which is another very important passage on the Word of God. And he saw the same thing. And so what he realized as he was standing there was that he was standing in a church and in a succession of men who had been committed to the Word of God to its authority over their lives, to its supremacy, and that it is the only infallible rule for all things in life and godliness. And so he wrote this. He says, It is my prayer that no man shall ever stand in this pulpit as long as time shall last who does not desire to have all that he does be based on this book. For this book does not contain the word of God. It is the word of God. And even though we may preach the word with all the stammering limitation of our human nature, the grace of God does the miracle of the ministry and through human lips speaks the divine word and the hearts of the people are refreshed. 
But Donald Gray Barnhouse, he understood that, that everything that was going to happen in his church, if it was going to be for God's glory, it was going to start with the foundational truth that Scripture alone is our only infallible and inerrant rule in faith. And this is the very issue that we're, that we're addressing today in this passage that we're looking at. This is what Paul was writing to Timothy about here in 2 Timothy. This is what Martin Luther and the Reformers were addressing during the Reformation. And this is why we must continue to revisit and relearn this doctrine because it's an, it's an issue that we still address Today, the centrality and the supremacy of Scripture is under constant attack, and it has been. All the way back to the garden, we know that that Scripture, that God's Word, has been under constant attack, being denied and distorted. And so we must continue to preach and believe and confess this doctrine of sola scriptura. So what we're going to do, I think they've got it up here for you. This is something we do every week. Every week when I preach at our church, I always have a truth taught. The, the primary truth that when we walk away today, that when we leave tonight, that if you remember one thing about what I said, it's not the story about Donald Gray Barnhouse or my pastoral insufficiencies, uh, insecurities. It's, it's this truth right here. It says, only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the, for the church. Only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient and final authority for the church. And we're going to talk about some of these things as we move on, these specific words and this truth. But, but briefly here, just to kind of sum these up, first scripture is our final and ultimate authority, that there is nothing higher or even equal to scripture in terms of its authority over our lives. Now, some people take this, this part too far, and they, they say that what would be called nuda scriptura, that, that we can't learn anything from anything other than Scripture. And that's, that's not what the Bible is telling us. The Bible never meant to be a, a textbook on, on certain subjects. It's not that we can't learn from other books or from other people, but when it comes to our faith, when it comes to life and to godliness, there is nothing higher or even equivalent to the Scriptures. Scriptures are sufficient authority, meaning Scripture contains everything that is necessary for salvation. As we just read in, in the London Baptist Confession, we're going to refer to again here shortly, that it has everything that is needed to bring one into saving faith with Christ. We don't need to add our own thoughts or our opinions or our ideologies. We don't need to water it down and make it more palatable. The scripture by itself is sufficient for salvation. And then finally, scripture is our inerrant authority. It is perfect. It is flawless because it comes from a creator who is perfect and who is flawless and who is himself truth. So all that he has given us is also perfect and flawless. And this is what we struggle with. This is the human condition that we're struggling with, is the belief, and, and maybe sometimes we even affirm these things, but it's the belief and then the practice, the humbling ourselves in order to respond faithfully to recognize Scripture in its due place as the authority of our lives. Because the, the human uh, temptation because of sin, our inclination is to deny and to distort that, that Scripture is that highest and unequivocal authority. And this is all over the world. This is, you know, rife in our lives. It's, it's, we see it institutionally. We see it politically. We see it culturally. We see it ideologically. And ultimately, that's the result because we live in a sinful, broken world that we question, we challenge. That's our first response because of sin is to challenge Scripture in its rightful place. So we're going to talk about this today. First thing I want to do, and I feel compelled to do this, um, I, I really want to get, like, totally geek mode right now and go into this, like, lecture on church history 
because I love that stuff. I'm not going to let myself do it for too long, but I do think that it's necessary because of this series that we're going to talk about, that we do talk about the Reformation at least a little bit. So we're going to start with a little bit of the context of the Reformation. So 500 years ago, uh, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, maybe you've, uh, many of you have heard this before, uh, is said to have nailed his 95 theses to the door on the church at the Wittenberg Castle. Now, this is actually kind of an arbitrary date for the start of the Reformation because the, the Reformation wasn't just one day. When Martin Luther went that day to, to deliver this, this document, he wasn't thinking, you know, I'm going to start the Reformation today. That wasn't his thought process. No, his, his thought was, there's something wrong in the church, and I'm going to start an argument, basically. I'm going to dispute these things that I think the church is wrong on. So he was really starting out to, setting out to dispute the church. As a matter of fact, that's what the 95 Theses were actually called. They were called a disputation on the power and the efficacy of indulgences. And that was really what that whole document was about, was arguing, disputing the church's position on indulgences. And if you're unfamiliar with indulgences, what indulgences were, uh, it was a practice in the Roman Catholic Church that because of the belief of the Roman Catholic Church that those who have passed could be in purgatory... Uh, which was another doctrine that wasn't found in the scriptures, but I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to stay away from the whole explanation of the Reformation tonight. Uh, but because they believed that, that some who have passed were in purgatory, that if you paid an indulgence to the church, they would tell their people, you can help get your, your loved ones out of purgatory and on into heaven. That you can pay that extra price, essentially that, that Christ, the price that Christ paid wasn't enough, but if you give us a little bit more to the church, we can get them out of there and on into heaven. And they were really good at it. There was a guy named Johann Tetzel, and he, he was really good at, at these guilt trips, and even had a nice catchy jingle at the end of this. this is a, a direct quote from him. He would say, listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that was a common quote and saying in a Catholic service at that time in order to get those people to give them more money or those pay those indulgences and basically fill the coffers of the church. And this is what Martin Luther was standing against. This was what he was arguing against. This was what his disputation was against, and this is what he took his stand against. So over the next few years, Luther would continue to teach. He would continue to write and, and to argue against the church, to dispute the church, uh, to the end that he would be condemned and deemed a heretic by the church. As a matter of fact, the second papal uh, commission, the pope himself, would call Luther's teachings scandalous and offensive to pious ears. And then he was given 120 days to recant, to say, no, everything I've written, everything I've taught to this point was wrong. The church is right that what I'm saying is, is not true, and to go back on what he had written and taught, and he refused to do so, and so he was excommunicated from the church. And then came this date. On April 21st, 1521, Martin Luther was called to what was called the Diet of Worms, which was basically a big council, a big group of, of church leaders who came together to argue everything that Luther had taught. And so they brought him into this, this room, and they had everything that he had written, all of his works in its entirety, on this table, all of his books just stacked up on this table, and they, they stood him there, and they asked him to refute his, himself, to basically tell us that all of this is wrong. 
And so Luther, when he was asked this question, instead of giving an, an immediate answer, recognizing that he wanted to be careful and that he didn't want to put the eternity of his own soul in danger, instead of giving an immediate answer, he asked for time. He said, you know what, I'd like just a little bit of time to think about this. Can I have 24 hours? And so this, they obliged, they gave him one day, and so he came back the next day. And when he came back, he said, if you can show me my errors, if you can show me what's wrong and what I taught, according to the scriptures, I will happily recant everything I've said. And they said no. As a matter of fact, there was a man there, Johann von der Eck. He, he, he said, we want an immediate answer, and we want it now. And this is what Luther said. And if you've heard a Martin Luther quote, my guess is it's probably this one. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. See, for, for Luther, the only thing that determined what was right and wrong, what was true and what was false, were the scriptures. And he refused to acknowledge that anything contrary to the scriptures or contradictory to the scriptures could possibly be truth. No, he used this phrase for the scriptures. He called it the norma normans non normata, which means it's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. So when it comes to determining truth, Scripture is the standard for all things. It cannot be standardized, and it is the thing that standardizes all other truth. If, it doesn't, if it's not consistent with Scripture, it cannot be true. It was the norma normans non normata. And this is what becomes the formal principle of the Reformation, that it is Scripture alone that determines what is truth. All of the other doctrines that you're going to hear about over the next few weeks, they all flow out of this one specific principle. And it might be important to, to include that, that these, these terms, sola scriptura and sola uh, gratia and sola fide and solus Christus and soli deo gloria, these terms you actually won't find in any of the reformers' writings. They didn't come up with these terms themselves. They really only came about, I think, about 100 to 150 years ago. But the doctrines themselves are abundantly evident all throughout their, their writings. Luther made no doubt about where he stood on Scripture, on that norm of norms that cannot be normed. And so this is where he made his stand, for which he was put on the run, for which many of the reformers were put on the run. But this was what he, he, where he planted his stakings. He said, I'm not moving here, I stand. And so now we come back to 2 Timothy today, because what... what Luther was saying 500 years ago, again, wasn't anything new. You know, the, the doctrines that he was, he was trying to, to teach wasn't something that he just created out of thin air, but rather it was something that the church had gotten away from and he was trying to call them back to, and I believe we see it here tonight in 2 Timothy 3. So we're going to come back these first five verses here in 2 Timothy, uh, where Paul, again, is writing to, to, to Timothy. Uh, his, he's writing a letter of pastoral encouragement. We call this one of the pastoral epistles. He's giving him encouragement, instruction on how to be a sound, biblical, uh, Christ-loving pastor. And so he has this, this whole chapter here on, on how Timothy is to handle 
the word of God. And he starts this passage, he says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So the last days here, can it's, it's used in a couple of different ways in scripture. Uh, it can be used as that time period from Christ's ministry until his return, the time in which we are now, the last days. But it can also sometimes be used to refer to the time right before Christ, or excuse me, Christ comes. Uh, and, and, and typically, at least in, in Paul's writings in this context, he's talking about just this time between Christ's ministry and the time of his return. But either way, whichever, one he, he, whichever uh, way he's using this particular uh, phrase here, what he's saying is things are going to get rough. Things are going to be difficult. And specifically, he goes on to tell us all the way that that things are going to be difficult. He says, look, all these things are going to come into your church. You're going to have lovers of self, lovers lovers of money. You're going to have pride people, arrogant people, abusive people, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. All these different people coming in and out of your church. You're going to have some that pretend to be lovers of God, but rather they're actually lovers of pleasure, only pretending. And he's saying this is what you're going to struggle with. That you're going to struggle, and, and all this is, everything that he lists here, what this is, is back to that original problem of sin. This is a struggle for self-autonomy. This is someone saying that I would rather have myself, or I would rather have money, or I'd rather have my pride or my arrogance than to submit before a holy God. And Paul's just being straight up. He's like, look, you're going to, you're going to deal with this. You're going to have this issue in your church, and there's only one way that you're going to be able to effectively deal with this, to deal with this in a way that's honoring to God and Christ exalting, and that is to stay firmly planted in the word of God. Now, Paul even provides a, a practical example here, here for Timothy. He talks about Janus and Jambres, two men who opposed Moses, who was doing the very same thing. He was bringing the word of God to God's people, and these two men directly opposed Moses. And in effect, what he's saying is, is when they do that, they're opposing Truth And so Paul's trying to encourage Timothy. He's trying to say, look, Moses went through this. I've gone through this. You're going to go through this. And it's an encouragement for us today because we are going through this. Luther went through it in the Reformation. We're going through it now. Matter of fact, I got to listen to a little bit of Pastor Dave's um, sermon last week on some of the cultural pressures being put on the church and some of the things that, that, are, that are distorting or attempting to distort the truths taught by the church. We are dealing with the same root problem today as Moses dealt with, as Paul dealt with, and as Luther dealt with. As, like I said earlier, as a matter of fact, this goes all the way back to the garden. That's what the serpent was doing with Eve when he said, did God really say, did he really say it like that? He made her question. He made her wonder, is this really the truth, or is God just trying to pull one over on you? And he was distorting the truth of God's word, and the, the situation has not changed ever since. Human, the human condition... The fallenness of man causes us to want to distort God's word and to make it our own for our own self-autonomy. And this, again, is why we must learn and relearn this doctrine of sola scriptura in order to cement the scriptures as the sovereign authority over our lives and to ward off its detractors. This is what it means to affirm sola scriptura. This is what it means to have a biblical worldview. It means that everything that we learn everything that we think, everything we're trying to attain in terms of of, of learning and living our life, we're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture. And we're going to hold it up to Scripture. We're going to see if it's consistent. And if it's not consistent, we're going to toss it out. It's gone. We're going to get rid of it. And if it is consistent with Scripture, we'll hang on to it because it obviously glorifies God. 
And this is what I think most of us struggle with the most, is, is this ability that, to have this biblical worldview, this lens, because it's too easy to just say, you know what, I just really want to go with what feels good right now. Um, this is really, you know, I, I, this is what I've really kind of wanted for a long time, or so-and-so does it, and so, you know, I think I'm just going to do it because it's, it's the consistent with the norm, with what people are doing, right? It's just too easy to say those things and to justify it to ourselves than it is to actually take the time to, to think through the Scriptures, to read through the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures say on that particular issue that we're dealing with. It's too easy just to make our own decision about what we're going to do. But that's what Sola Scriptura is all about. That decision isn't ours to make. That decision has to be consistent with the Word of God if we are, in fact, a child of God. And this is what Matthew Barrett says is the biggest struggle for Christians today. He says one of the most significant needs in the 21st century is a call back to the Bible. This is for Christians. It's a call for Christians back to the Bible to a posture that encourages reverence, acceptance, and adherence to its authority and its message. And there's probably a lot of reasons why the church struggles with this. I think a lot of this has to do with the information revolution and all the, the, the access we have to different, um, different truth teachings or truth claims. And so we're, we're hit and we're, we're barraged with all these different claims about truth. And so we kind of take and, and kind of have this little like smorgasbord or buffet of truth where we get to kind of pick what we like and what we want from all these different truth claims. And whatever feels right is what we end up with or whatever we like the most is what ends up on our plate. But what Paul's saying here, what he's getting ready to say to, to Timothy, is that the only thing that is your infallible rule in life and in faith is the Word of God. This was the position of Luther as he stood before his accusers at the Diet of Worms, and it was the position of Paul as he writes here to Timothy that the Bible is our sovereign and our sole authority. And so he encourages Timothy. He says, Continue in the truth. Down in verse 10. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But the thing here that that Paul's doing is, is he's giving Timothy a model. You know, Paul's saying to Timothy here, look, you've, you've seen all that I've done. He's not, he's not really boasting here. Paul, Paul even says in other passages, model me only as I model Christ, or follow me, or, or behave like me only as I follow and behave like Christ. So he's just saying, look, I've given you kind of the template, because the template was given to me, and that template's Jesus. This is what your life should look like. You've seen it in traveling with me, and, and in following with me, and traveling around the Mediterranean with me. This is what your life should look like. But then he goes on. In verses 14 and 15, just in case Timothy misunderstood what he was saying about the source of truth. Paul doesn't want him to to walk away from this letter thinking that Paul's saying, I'm the source of the truth, but here's where it came from. Verses 14 and 15. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And there it is. This is where everything that Paul has taught Timothy comes from. This is where everything that that Paul was taught came from, from these sacred writings. And what are those sacred writings? These are the scriptures. 
These are the old, at Paul's time, these are the Old Testament scriptures and all that Christ had taught to his apostles and disciples. These are the sacred writings that he's talking about. And he, so after telling Timothy about this, this really hard and difficult time he's going to have in the last days and all these different problems that you're going to deal with and you're going to see in the church and people who are deceiving you and, 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 and showing themselves as lovers, God, lovers of God but really not actually lovers of God, the one thing that you need to hang on to, the one thing that will help you in this situation, the one thing that, that will have any type of efficacy whatsoever in terms of godliness and, re- and bringing sinners to repentance is the word of God. It's the scriptures. Don't forget what you have learned and have known since you were a small child. Don't forget where it came from and what it is. It's those sacred writings, those holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. You know, when, when Paul teaches this, he's operating under the assumption that the scriptures are sufficient for Timothy. He didn't say go out and get all the philosophers you could find and and try to convert them and and get the smartest people you can find. He didn't go out and say go out and get the best army and try to stiff arm and twist people's arms into Christianity. No, he said rely on the scriptures. Rely on God's word. Rely on the truth. This is what you need. This is what has the power to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's operating on the the idea that these scriptures are totally sufficient for everything that Timothy is going to need in these last days. So this brings us then to to the scripture itself. What about the scriptures makes it sufficient? What about it makes it able to make people wise for salvation, which is the rest of our, our truth that we had this morning. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to, not going to go through every one of these. As a matter of fact, if you were to take a, a class on this or a systematic theology course or something like that or bought the textbook, um, each one of these things I'm getting ready to talk about would have its own chapter. So we're not going to you know, spend 30 minutes on each one, but I do think it's important that we understand these terms and at least what they mean in terms of the doctrine of sola scriptura. So the first thing we said was that that scripture was inspired by God. That it was of God's inspiration. We see this in several places in Scripture. We, we'll see how come back here to 2 Timothy. But in 2 Peter 1.21, Peter wrote, he said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you then, where, what's the source then? If he says no prophecy came from man, then what is the source of the prophecy? Well, he goes on to tell us, he says, Those men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God's the source. And then again, Paul here in 2 Timothy today, in verse 16, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So again, what's the source of this breath? The source is God. Yes, it was men who penned these, these writings. Yes, it was men who wrote these things down, and God wasn't controlling them like a robot or a puppet on the on strings, but rather the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write God's word and was using them and and ensuring that what they wrote was consistent, not only with what God said, but it was actually what God said and what God, the message that God was giving them. And because God's spirit was at work and was securing this, we can trust it to be from God. God was the source of its content and it was the work of his spirit to ensure its purity while maintaining the personal 
characteristics of the author. These men, again, they, we still see their personality in their writings. We see Luke, who was a physician, and the, all the detail that he used when he wrote. And then we see Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was a very succinct, to-the-point person. We get to see those types of personal characteristics. My father-in-law says Paul is the, the, the funniest author of the Bible. He just thinks Paul's hilarious, some of the things that Paul says, and, and how direct and even mean Paul can be sometimes when he's talking to people. So we get to see their per- So they didn't become drones, but rather they, be, they, they maintained their personality, but at the same time what they wrote was secured by the power of the Spirit. Secondly, our truth today said, or tonight said that the, that the Scriptures are inerrant, meaning they are without error, that they are totally true in every single way and without flaw, that they're not wrong. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus said himself to the Father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in the same book, in chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And this word here that, that Jesus uses for truth in the Greek, this is a word that's meant specifically for an objective truth. Not, sort of, not some sort of relativistic subjective truth, but an objective truth that is always true in any matter of consideration. And so when, when Jesus himself, when God himself says that the word of God is an objective truth, and then when he says that he himself is the truth and that all of scripture is inspired by the God who is truth himself, then we can know that it's all truth, that it is totally inerrant, that it is without flaw, and that it's perfect. We can know that some people sometimes, this is, I think, one that a lot of people struggle with, that they stumble on, they want to know, well, how do we know? How do we know that that what Jesus has said was true? And, and, And the simple and short answer is what Paul said. If, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then everything we teach and believe is in vain. So Paul himself starts with the resurrection. Because the tomb was empty, and even told him when he wrote that, he said, go ask. There's still people who saw the resurrected Christ, who are still alive today, who saw the empty tomb. Go ask. Ask them what they saw and what they witnessed. And do you know how many historical writings there are refuting the resurrection from that time period of antiquity? None. There are none. So because Christ was risen, because Christ is the resurrected Savior, because he is God himself, he said who he said he was, we can know that what he says is true. We can know he is the solid rock as we sing. I don't know if you guys sing that one or not. We sing it all the time. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Because the tomb was empty, we can trust in what Christ said. We can trust that this is a perfect word from a perfect God. And this is important, I think, again, back to our day and age. I've, I've kind of gotten away from that. This, you know, the idea of relativism and, and biblical criticism that the Bible's fallen over, under over the last you know, couple of centuries, really. Um, this idea of absolute truth is becoming farther and farther away from the norm. Right? We live in a country where what's going on right now is people are becoming polar opposites. We're getting further, at least my opinion anyway, that we're getting further and further away from each other. There, there's no meeting in the middle right now. And it's the same, same thing here when it comes to truth. What you're seeing in churches, this is why the, the liberal churches, the mainline churches, you're seeing them get further and further away from some of these foundational cardinal truths is because we're so far away from each other on this. If God's word is not absolute truth, then why do we need to abide by and adhere to it and obey it and humble ourselves 
before it. We'll just kind of do what we want. We'll get over here. That's the thing we're dealing with. So this is a, a vitally important doctrine as we tackle those types of issues in our culture today. The next thing the truth mentioned was the clarity of Scripture. Actually, we, this was our, our Scripture reading tonight, Psalm 119, 105. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so there's something inherent here about this particular passage, why I chose this passage. What, what the psalmist here is saying is that when, when you read God's word, it shows you something. It reveals something to you personally that you can understand. It's telling you something. And that inherently means that you can understand it, right? That, it, that it's clear, that God's word is understandable to the reader. See, in the Reformation... Excuse me. And the Reformation, one of the things that the, the Roman church believed was that no one could interpret Scripture except for the church, the clergy, the high clergy, the pope, the cardinals. No one below the church, the, the church leadership could read and interpret and understand Scripture. And Luther and the Reformers, they were looking at this passage, they're like, what do you mean? Like, God's Word, it, it, it's supposed to show me how to live my life. It's supposed to shed light on the sin in my life, but I, I can't read it? I mean, what's up with that? This is, why they, this is why they were so bent on translating it. This is why so many men were so willing to lose their lives during the Reformation to get the Bible translated into other languages. Men like William Tyndale or John Rogers, who were burned at the stake while being strangled for translating the Bible into English. They knew that the Bible was clear and that it was understandable. Now, is everything perfectly clear? No, there are some passages of Scripture that aren't explicitly clear to us, and we can have good brotherly debate amongst the church and even amongst denominations about what it means. But in general, the vast majority of Scripture is immediately clear to the reader. And then finally, the last, last word that we used in our truth taught tonight was the sufficiency of Scripture. I've already mentioned once or twice so the Bible was inspired by God, it is inerrant, it is clear, and it is sufficient. I think Peter sums this up for us best in 2 Peter 1. He says, His, meaning Christ, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So what Peter's saying is that by Christ, because Jesus is God, by his divine power, he has granted to us all things, not just some things, not just a little bit of what's needed for you to be saved, but all things that pertain to life and godliness. Meaning nothing else is needed. So again, back to the Reformation. In the, in the Roman church, the, the, the idea or the, the, the church teaching was based upon you know, the, the, the scriptures were okay, they were good, they were from God, they were inspired, but, but they didn't sit by themselves at the top as your authority. No, you also need the church, that the, the church's traditions are equal to the scriptures. And the church's magisterium, meaning their authority, the authority of the pope and the cardinals, it was equal to and stood next to the scriptures. And the reformers kept saying, no, 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 back... Peter, right here, he's telling us right here, his, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything I need is right here in the scriptures. I don't need the church to decide what needs added or taken away or changed. I don't need, I don't need tradition. It's just the scriptures. 
And in all things, it's sufficient. It is enough. It is able to lead me in life and in godliness. Now, does this mean that Scripture answers every question about, like, I don't know, what's some fancy degree in college? Um, molecular biology. No. It was never meant to do that. But what it does mean is that everything that we do find to be true, and no matter what field or ideology or a philosophy that we're talking about, if it doesn't find itself to be consistent with the scriptures, then it can't be held as true. And this is what Peter was saying. This is what Timothy was, or Paul was saying to Timothy again when he was talking about those sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You don't need anything else for your salvation. The scriptures are sufficient because Christ was sufficient. We read this again in, in the confession tonight. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. No, that is only found in the sacred writings of the Holy Scriptures. And so what does that mean for us? What's the, the practical application? What do we, how do we take this truth of sola scriptura away with us and, 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 and practice it in our lives? And I think Paul answers that for us in those first few verses of chapter 4 that I read. Again, he said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passage, passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the, the most immediate answer here that Paul gives us in terms of practicality and how, what this looks like in our lives is, number one, preach the word. As a church, preach the word. Stick to the word. Let the word be the foundation of all that you do both corporately as you come together and gather for worship like we're doing right now, but also practically as you go and you leave these doors tonight and you go about your lives and you're evangelizing and you're discipling one another and you're sharing the gospel as you're doing the mundane things in life at work or at school or wherever your life takes you this week, stick to the word. Preach the word. And this has other inherent truths to it that go with it as well. If, if Timothy is to preach the word, then that means that his hearers are to hear the word, right? And that goes without saying. They're to receive the word. To accept it. For the truth that it is. To not attempt to distort it and twist it and kind of make it my own. That way I can still justify those things that I like to do, but I know they don't glorify God. No, receive the word as it is. You don't need to add to it with tradition. You don't need to add to it with, ma with your own form of magisterium. Preach and receive the word as it is, just as he told Timothy to do. He said, look, Timothy, you have heard this since you were a small boy. You know what the scriptures teach. Stick to it. And so upon receiving the word, then we also inherently must then believe the word. 
Because it's one thing to affirm something to be true. It's another thing to actually believe it. Okay, and I always tell my people when, when it comes to belief, belief, the way that we know the difference between one and the other, affirmation is just simply saying, yes, that's true. Belief in something is allowing what I just said to be true to affect the way I respond to that truth. Belief in a truth always leads to a response. Matter of fact, that's what truth does. Every single truth claim in the scriptures makes a claim on your life, calls you to some sort of response and in some way. And so we receive the word as the truth and then we believe in the word by responding to it faithfully. And then we live the word. We humble ourselves. We, we, we dive into the word as much as possible, recognizing it as that sovereign authority and then trusting what it says to be true and striving to obey it. Not because that, that brings us into God's favor, but because that's how we glorify the God who has brought us into his favor. That's how we honor the God who sent his son, who was the way, who is the truth, who is the life, to give himself and to, to, to take our place on that cross. This is how we honor him, by glorifying him, by obeying his word. This is how we witness. This is what this morning, as a matter of fact, I'm preaching a, a, an expository series through the book of Acts and we're in Acts chapter 3. So Peter has just preached his sermon at Pentecost. And he and John are walking uh, up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And there's the lame beggar there asking for alms. And this is where Peter and John, they, they make eye contact with this man on a very personal level. level and, and they say, silver and gold we have not, but all I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. But the reason I, I, I go to that passage is they were doing that in the most crowded part of the city where there was all kinds of people to witness, not to get eyes on them, but rather for people to witness the glory and the power of God. It was their mere faithfulness and obedience to their call to mission that glorified God. And it's the same thing here. This is what we're called to, is this type of trusting obedience and faithfulness to God's word. We must do so in the midst of persecution. We must do so in the midst of the moral decay that we're, we're going through right now. We must do so in the midst of, of false teaching. We must stand on the word of God. We must receive it. We must believe it. And we must live it. Because the last days will be difficult. Because people will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine. We must preach the word. This was Paul's intent for Timothy. It's his intent for us. It's that when we are, are tried by the many challenges of the authority and to the supremacy of the scriptures, that we will respond just as Paul did and just as Timothy was instructed to do and just as Luther did, that the church will say, here we stand, we can do no other. We will stand on the word of God because it is God's inspired word, his inerrant, his sufficient and the final authority for the church. We need to believe every idea and suggestion and person and ruler must humbly bow to this one word and truth alone, which is the scripture. So that's my exhortation as I close here tonight, as I challenge you tonight, is to ask those types of questions, both as yourself, as individually, as a Christian, and then as a congregation of gathering believers. That can I make the same claim as Luther? 
Can we as a church make the same claim as Martin Luther did at the Diet of Worms? Are we bound by the Holy Scriptures and nothing else? Or are we succumbing to the pressures and the temptations and false teachings of the world that are trying to pull us away from this truth? Are we contending for the truth of the Scriptures? Or are we fighting for our own self-authority and autonomy? My prayer is that, that we will stand together as brothers and sisters and that we will be able to say, here's where we stand. I can do no other but stand on the Word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, God, we thank you tonight that you are a God of truth and that we can trust that nothing comes from you but all that is good and truth. That we can rely on your word, that we can depend on it, that we can receive it and believe it because it is the infallible, inspired, sufficient and clear word of God revealed to us so that we may know you in a personal and saving way. God, we give thanks for the blood of Christ and all that he did for us to bring us into a reconciled relationship with you. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.